Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, this is the Red Box podcast, day two of Prime Minister's week. It's 300 years since Robert Walpole became Britain's first PM. So all this week, we're taking an in-depth look at what it takes to do the job. Yesterday, we put together our perfect PM, still to come this week. How do you win at PMQs? And has Keir Starmer got what it takes to get his hands on the keys to number 10? But today... Oh, there's only one Prime Minister that everybody loves, and that is Jim Hacker. We speak to one of the co-creators of Yes Prime Minister, Jonathan Lynn, about how the series came about, the sources that told them how government really works, and why he thinks that far from improving uh, the way that we're governed, the series may have made the country worse. That's coming up. But first is our columnist panel. It's Tuesday, so it must be Finkelvich. It's Danny Finkelstein and David Aronovich. So let's talk about uh, a story which is dominating at least some of the front pages, well, mainly the Daily Mirror. Uh, Jennifer R. Curie, uh, number 10, insisting he conducted himself with honesty and integrity during his alleged relationship with Jennifer R. Curie, um, following new accounts that the two of them had sex on a sofa in his marital home. Does this matter in the 21st century, Danny? Well, first of all, it's obviously preposterous to describe him as having acted with honesty and integrity during an affair in which he was sleeping with somebody on his wife's, uh, on, on his family sofa behind her back. But um, the, the question of whether it matters, well, my view is that um, most people's attitude is that his private life is his private life. Uh, they don't necessarily approve of it, but most people think, well, you know, I don't know their marriage and I don't know their relationship. But the problem with these uh, um, kind of affairs in politics is that they usually go with a degree of subterfuge, uh, which can lead you into trouble. And I do wonder whether the trailing, um, uh, you know, series of lies he had to tell in order to maintain an affair uh, behind his wife's back might have might have been. Imp- encompassed his public office as well. It does look from the initial uh, investigation as though that was not the case. But on the other hand, um, when you look at the London Assembly going after it, they'll be considerably, um, probably less independent, but certainly less sympathetic. Um, I think it's quite possible that he'll have ended up um, compromising himself in some way. That's exactly what happened with Bill Clinton. You know, he had a relationship and then he ended up being dragged into perjury accusations and it did actually involve his public office. Uh, what do you think, David? Because in a way, that's the thing, isn't it? Is it what, what's, it's the money rather than the sex that might might do for Boris Johnson. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that just conjured up an image as well, which... Um... <laughs> 
I'm not sure. <laughs> I want to get into it. The, the, I just want to go back for a moment to the Bill Clinton uh, instance, because what happened immediately afterwards, or, or as the Bill Clinton thing unrolled, and as Ken Starr went after him with the, uh, 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 with the special inquiry, was that uh, measurably public sympathy appeared to go back to Bill Clinton. This created a kind of truism which has been around for some time, which is that this can actually help somebody, funnily enough, because it shows them to be a real person and it's a real person who then can sometimes repent and, you know, and, and so on. And they're just like me, although I have to say, Boris Johnson's sex life is nothing like mine. <laughs> I, you know, so I don't really feel that kind of, you know, enormous sense of, uh, of oh, there but for the grace of God go I with uh, any blonde person who comes my way. Um, uh, so... Uh, and I wonder whether that's really true, because looking at it in the kind of long term, looking at it in the period from Clinton to Trump, I rather wonder whether actually it didn't do the Clintons and especially Hillary, who essentially got blamed for what Bill had done for having been, in a sense, the victim of his subterfuge, whether it didn't actually do a significant amount of damage. But it just takes some time to assess what that damage is in terms of trust or belief in people's integrity. Uh, so there's a longer term question about what might be the impact of somebody's behaviour which tells you about them that they are routinely um, uh, dishonest um, in their personal yeah. dealings, which, which you have to be to maintain affairs of that kind over that kind of... Like, uh, there's no kind of way about it. And I, want, I rather wonder what you think about that, Danny, whether or not we sometimes look at this t in too short-term a way. Yes, I think so. And I also think the other thing that got the Clintons in the end was this sense of an endless soap opera. Um, so the biggest enemy of Boris Johnson uh, uh, and the Conservative government, actually, is the time for a change feeling. And if people get bored um, with constant sagas, um, weirdly, without necessarily taking an individual view in each saga, because they can't make a judgment it's too complicated or they haven't followed it or they're not sure about their own moral judgment but they can get bored and begin to think you know a, a regime or an individual is tawdry that can get you and i think that is actually probably what did happen to the clintons um in the end and and you know david quite rightly said that it was completely unfairly visited on her rather than on him but it was just a, like another saga and that idiotic email nonsense that that ultimately ended <laughs> up getting uh, Hillary um, into so much trouble was connected actually yeah. to this uh, to, to to the affair and um, to Monica Lewinsky uh, it was the endless saga so I think that is definitely the time for a change feeling being so important in terms of this government's survival that is certainly uh, I would if I were Boris Johnson I was communication advisors I'd be worried about that yeah, so it's not the sort of uh, individual, you know, scandals, whether it's an affair or, you know, the Dominic Cummings saga or the, the redecorating the flats of the UI. If you sort of put it all together, well, it just creates uh, a sense of yes. why don't you just get on and run the country. Well, that, uh, and it also creates another problem. For example, so this was, I believe, I, 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 I've been away for a bit, but this was, I believe, Allegra Stratton's first uh, performance at the new podium that they've had created. Uh, no, no, so she still hasn't uh, actually yet graced the £2.6 million podium. She's still doing it on the phone. Oh, uh, right, so she was doing it on the phone. So when, when this person who's been brought in... Uh, uh, to establish the credentials of the Prime Minister in particular. Uh, and, and to do that, she needs to establish her own credentials. In one of her very early briefings, says something which is preposterous, like the honesty <laughs> and the integrity of it, so much so that we laugh at it. That means, 
frankly, that we don't have any trust from that moment, particularly in her own honesty and integrity, I'm afraid, when communicating about the Prime Minister. You understand it's a job, but did she really have to say that? No, I mean, presumably she could have just said it's his private life and this was before he was Prime Minister and I'm here to talk about his... And actually, well, you, you do want, actually, that would probably be... It would be a bigger story. It would certainly be people taking the mick out of it more had she said this while on live TV from a podium. Did, wouldn't it? Did she have to say it? Yes. And this is, this is very interesting. So when Geoffrey Archer was the Conservative candidate, when I argued really, really strongly with William Hague that we ought not to allow him to be the candidate. Um, that and be, for exactly this London reason Mayor. that William... William, yes, to be, to be the candidate for London Mayor, I'm sorry, yes, I'm going back into political history without explaining it, um, <laughs> the, the, to be the Conservative candidate for London Mayor, he, he became the candidate, and of course William Hague, leader of the party at the time, was asked, do you trust, do you believe he's in, in, in his integrity? And he had to say yes, because what can you say? You can't say, um, well, no, I don't believe in his integrity exactly. Um, <laughs> you know, so if, if the Prime Minister's spokesman is asked that, he has to, uh, she has to say she believes in his honesty and integrity. Um, and that's the problem with doing those kind of things. Um, you know, and that's why you get into trouble, because obviously you then make statements that are ridiculous. I was struck over the weekend, when the first story, the, the first... Uh, Daily Mirror, I think Sunday Mirror story broke about this. I tweeted over the weekend saying, all these stories about Boris Johnson being a love cheat are explosive. There's no way he can come back from this. It's over. Now, it has to be said that some people took this uh, slightly li so literally that I had to follow it up with a with a, a, a <laughs> an addendum which said, as a general rule, assume I'm being sarcastic. And I do wonder if the people who really can't stand Boris Johnson, who uh, think that this this alone should be grounds for his uh, removal, they're sort of fighting a battle with that the ship has long since sailed as to whether or not Boris Johnson is yeah. a fine, upstanding man of integrity. That doesn't seem to overly concern the electorate. Um, and as long as they think he's still delivering for them, that's ultimately what matters. Yeah, I think these things are sort of tipping point things. That's interesting. It, it doesn't matter and it doesn't matter and doesn't matter until it really does. And one day we'll wake up and one of these... I've always thought this, I think it's really quite possible that one of these things will get him. So with, with other Prime Ministers, with Tony Blair, for example, um, actually with David Cameron, with uh, Gordon Brown, you know, when they got into trouble, like for Tony Blair, for example, on, on, the, on the Eccleston uh, affair, um, and when, they, when there was the million pound um, that the Labour Party had taken and had they offered favours and everything, and Tony Blair was able to appeal to people's view of his integrity. And although people sort of made a joke out of it, they did actually have a fund of belief in that and it did get him through it um, and I think um, there's an assumption Prime Ministers do act with integrity if they say so that is acceptable he doesn't have that defence and I think one day we'll wake up in the middle of one of these things and to our surprise we'll find it really matters um, it's just funny. that it's very difficult to tell in advance what that is that's very funny Danny you're quite right for those who are not as ancient as, uh, as we are. When this particular Eccleston Fair broke, he went on a programme called On the Record um, with John Humphreys, and he said this famous thing. He said, well, I like to think I'm a pretty straight kind of guy. OK. Now, nobody laughed. Nobody laughed, really. There's such a, you, know, well, you know, some people said, blah, 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 et cetera. Now, imagine Boris Johnson going on the program and saying, I like to think I'm a pretty straight yeah. kind of guy. People would just fall over. But, but isn't yeah, well, that part see, of his brat? Isn't that the? I suppose that's my point, really. Is that it's well, part it of it. he be, says things but, which make people laugh, and it doesn't seem to matter. That's possible, but you know, with Theresa May, for example, if Theresa May had got, a, you know, if there was some. Uh, 
thing involving a mortgage in some place. I don't know, I'm trying to invent something, but the but some scandal had happened. Nobody would think that the, the, the Prime Minister was involved. She would be able to deny it. People would believe her denial. I just don't think he's quite got that. Now, it may be that it doesn't matter. Um, because, but, but you you know, it a little bit depends on how long he remains Prime Minister and what happens. So it's a little bit of luck. But I, I think I'd be wary of saying it definitely doesn't matter. None of these things will ever get him. He's completely proved to them. I think it possibly will matter at some point that he, that he won't be able to rely on the assumptions we have about Prime Ministers. Um, and um, that and and he'll be more vulnerable to a scandal that would get a junior minister but doesn't normally get a prime minister and one of those might get him which wouldn't get another prime minister yeah that's interesting yeah it it doesn't matter until it until it really does uh, let's talk about um uh, well uh, scandals which haven't yet claimed a scalp uh, but um Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon um, uh, they were political friends now political enemies and now it's becoming it's becoming intensely personal as well David. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I wanted to hear Danny about this because, um, and actually, it's funny he mentioned the Hague, uh, uh, the, the, the Hague era, because I'm very interested in where most politicians know most of the time that their opponents, the people who are opposed to them, even people on their own side who oppose them, are not bad people. They don't hate them, they don't dislike them, etc. They just understand that they're on the other side, etc. And most of us who are sensible recognise that people who are allied to us are just as likely to be nasty as people who are on the other side, and so on, and, and vice versa. Um, uh, but sometimes this, rec- this, this is replaced by a feeling of genuine dislike, hatred, etc. It turns completely sour, as it certainly seems to have done with Sal- Salmond and Sturgeon uh, and so on. There is, and, and, and their camps. And I'm really interested in what happens at the moment when this turns from being uh, uh, a, a thing which, if you like, is containable within the political sphere and becomes a personal sphere. Now, we know, for example, going way back in the day, that Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr disliked each other enough to actually fight a duel over it, although dueling was a really big problem in the early days of the American revolutionary government uh, and so on. And they were always killing each other through duels because this is the way they kind of dealt with it and so on. But uh, it became a really big problem. So I, I, I went off and I took a little look at great political feuds and one of them that I found, New Statesman around 2017, was Team Hague versus Team Portillo. And this goes back to the days when William Haig was leader, was not having a very good time against Tony Blair. Michael Portillo had just come back into Parliament, if you remember, he famously lost in 1997. And they've got this as one of the great feuds. And I thought, who do I know who was around that? Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Come on then, Danny. What, what, what do you do when, when what starts out as a sort of political disagreement turns into a, a really poisonous personal feud? Actually, interestingly, um, William Hague himself uh, didn't really do personal feuds. So it wasn't actually that personal, but it was certainly quite encamped. Um, and uh, it's a bit debilitating, actually, because it means that within the team, you're not sure that everybody's making the decisions together for the same reasons. Um, I'm a bit naive about I'm quite Boy Scout about this. As David knows, I tend to like everybody. And so I kind of, <laughs> I, I sort of mostly noticed there was a big feud when it was when we'd all, when we'd all lost everything and left office completely. <laughs> um, but uh, in, it, I mean, it can be. There were certainly some awkward relationships. Um, uh, I, 
you know, it's interesting. And there, and there are some people who attract them. It's interesting you mentioned Aaron Burr, um, David. It was actually Thomas Jefferson who really fell out with everybody um, uh, and um, was a sort of great factionalist with both Marshall and Hamilton and Washington. They did it in a serial way. And some people just are a bit like that. Um, and, um, I mean, Gordon Brown... Well, David Davis, actually, I mean, I think it's more realistically true that, um, I mean, David Davis's political um, chances were, were much more materially affected by those kind of personal feuds. I've always got on fine with him myself, but by those kind of political feuds than, than, um, than is standard. Most people don't. <laughs> most people don't end up in these kind of personal feuds. The Alex Salmon thing is extraordinary. You know, you do have to ask yourself... Uh, how Nicola Sturgeon could not have seen that in Alex Salmond because it was completely obvious from the outside. I think sometimes when you're on the inside, you can't see it, maybe. And also, you don't, you know, the, the things that makes him such a formidable enemy was probably partly why you quite liked him being on your team. You know, it sounds it's sort of, you know, you know it's, he's, he's absolutely brilliant the way he destroys his opponents, um, and it was just <laughs> fine until you become uh, one of them. Um, well, Danny, D- Danny raises this point, which is which is really quite interesting, which is sometimes that it's the thing that is closest to you that you don't want to see and so on. And it does remind me of my friend, the psychoanalyst Stephen Gross in his book, <clears throat> talks of a patient he saw, which is actually probably a composite patient and so on, um, who he realised what she did, which was that her husband was having a series of affairs. And, uh, and this culminated in a moment when she, when she told how she was phoned up, somebody phoned on their line, and somebody said, oh, hello, is Shagger there? And even then, she didn't get the idea notion that maybe her husband was a little bit of a Boris Johnson. Well, there we are. I'm really worried about, <laughs> about your washing machine. Whoever it is has got washing that needs taking out. Um, from that me, week. it's is it, me. Is it your washing machine? Well, Danny, I'll let you go. In, uh, literally, it's the only washing that's OK for you to wear in public. <laughs> Um, uh, why are we so be talking? I've opened the machine. There, lots Matt. of people, lots of people have been in touch saying it does matter uh, that Boris Johnson uh, may have had an affair. Uh, although Clarissa gets in touch and says, if Theresa May had, had some startling love affair on anyone's sofa, including her own, the electorate might have warmed to her. Uh, so you know, maybe there's uh, pluses and minuses. Too. Danny, David, lovely speeches over. That's Finkelfitch. Um, what I mean, yeah, one of our favourite items on the show. Daniel Finkstein and David Iwanovich there. And, of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Danny on a Wednesday, David on a Thursday. Just get yourself a Times digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is our interview with Jonathan Lynn. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. Now, you may remember in October last year, we ran a World Cup of fictional politicians and in a tight race, one man won with 50.9% of the vote. Yes, Jim Hacker, who was Minister at the Department of Administrative Affairs and 35 years ago this year became Prime Minister. Ah, yes, Minister, and later, yes, Prime Minister, not only captured a place in the public's heart, becoming one of the biggest sitcoms of the 1980s, but it also became a manual for aspiring politicians, found fans among prime ministers and lobby journalists alike, and was an all-too-truthful account of dysfunctional government for a cynical electorate. The series, of course, starred Paul Eddington as the well-meaning minister Jim Hacker, battling with a civil service machine controlled by Nigel Hawthorne's Sir Humphrey Appleby, a character so acutely drawn that Sir Humphrey is now a Westminster byword for senior, pompous and overbearing civil servants. We couldn't mark Prime Minister's Week without discussing perhaps the greatest political comedy on our screens, which is currently being re-shown on Tuesday nights on BBC Two. So I'm delighted to welcome to Times Radio one of the series' co-creators, Jonathan Lynn. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Now, it's one of those shows, and at various points we've done, you know, the best political TV show ever, the best fictional uh, politician ever, and yes, Prime Minister and Jim Hacker are always up there. Let's go right back to the beginning, because you started off as a as a you wanted to be an actor uh, rather than a, a writer of political sitcoms. So how and you actually almost didn't want to write it. So how did the the show originally come about? Well, I was an actor for a long time. Uh, I was happy to be an actor, except that you know over the years I discovered that I wasn't mostly getting parts that interested me, and I turned to writing and directing. I'd been writing with Tony Jay who was my co-writer on Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister. I've been writing management training films for Tony's company, Video Arts, which were a very good deal. They were better paid than writing for the BBC. <laughs> I got, I'd been writing situation comedies for years. I'd got really bored with being a sort of sausage machine, turning out the product that's slightly different, but fundamentally exactly the same week after week. So I started directing at the Cambridge Theatre Company. I became the artistic director there. And Tony, before I did that, said to me, I've got an idea for a series about Whitehall, politicians and civil servants. Would that interest you? And I said, no, not at all. <laughs> Sounds really boring. And so that was that. And three or four years later, I was thinking, oh, I'd really like to write something again. And I didn't have anything in mind. And I phoned Tony and said, um, did you ever do anything with that idea? And he said, no, are you interested now? So I said, well, you know, maybe. You know, neither of us knew much about government, really. He knew maybe a touch more than I did, but I'd been a political junkie all my life. And Tony had worked as an executive at the BBC, which is very close to being a civil servant. So we started researching it. 
And after a few weeks, we decided there might there really might be a series in this. So we came up with a, a format and offered it to uh, the BBC, uh, who said, yes, they liked it. So we wrote a pilot. And that, that's how it began. And then after we'd written the pilot, which they liked, that we tried to cast it. And that took a bit of a time because we all agreed that we wanted Paul Eddington and Nigel Hawthorne for the two leading parts. But they were very cautious, being sensible actors. They didn't want to commit to a pilot without knowing how good the series would be. Sometimes a pilot better than the rest of the series, and you get stuck. So they said, could they see the second episode? So the BBC asked us to write a second episode, which we did. Paul and Nigel said, yes, we like that. Can we see another one? So there were <laughs> we wrote four episodes. Finally, when they said, can we see number five? We said, no, make up your minds. And they agreed to to do the pilot. So it was a lengthy process. And then we made the pilot. And then the BBC wouldn't put it on the air because it was clear there was going to be a general election sometime in the next year or so. Yeah, 18 months. Callaghan's government was in going from bad to worse. Nobody knew whether he or Mrs Thatcher would win the next election. And they were so different. And so the BBC didn't want to be accused of partisanship. So... Um, they kept it off the air until Mrs. Thatcher won. So people thought that we were writing about the Thatcher government, but in fact, we wrote the whole of the first series when Callaghan was Prime Minister. And I was, I was going to ask you about that, because you, you, you're you so diligent in never mentioning politics of any kind. It's always the government and the opposition. Party headquarters is Central House. I think at one point Jim Hacker wears a, a white uh, rosette rather than uh, red or blue. How important was it for you to keep party politics out of it? It was very important. We didn't want to be seen as, as a Tory programme or a Labour programme. We weren't interested in We weren't actually writing about politics. We were writing about government. Nobody really knew much about government outside of lobby correspondence and, you know, p- political correspondence and newspapers and people who had read the Crossman Diaries. The Crossman Diaries <laughs> was our first source. And we wanted to write about how government actually works. And that meant writing about civil servants and portraying them not as silly men with uh, bowler hats who drank cups of tea, but as people who actually were very smart and ran the country. So that's what we were eager to do. Uh, furthermore, we kept politics out of it because Tony and I didn't really agree politically. He was rather right-wing and I was rather more left-wing. But we did agree about what was funny in the government. We also wanted to make the point it didn't make any difference, really, who the government was. I, the opposition, aren't the opposition. No, of course not. Silly of me. They're just called the opposition. They're only the opposition in exile. The civil service are the opposition in residence. We based Jim Hacker on the idea of a centrist minister who could have belonged to either party, which would have been somebody like Jim Pryor or Roy Jenkins, or there were quite a few of sort of politicians who just happened to be in one party or the other, but could have been in either. Uh, it's less true today, I think, but it was certainly true then. And when you went about researching it, where, who, apart from the Cosman Diaries, who did you speak to? Who, who were the best sources for, for really getting a feel of it? Uh, well, we, we had two really great sources. Uh, one was Marsha Williams, later Lady Falkinder, who had been Harold Wilson's political secretary. And I knew uh, Bernard Donoghue, who was head of the political unit at Number 10, under both Callaghan and Wilson, unusually to be head of a political unit under two prime ministers. We never told each, each of them that the other was a source because <laughs> they were well known to really... De- dislike each other <laughs> and uh, <laughs> disapprove of each other. But they both knew all about what went on in government. And so we would try out every idea on them and they would give us lots of feedback. If it was a, we were writing about something that they were not particularly expert on, 
both of them would guide us towards other sources who were really expert, you know, in whatever field it was that we were writing about that week. So we had a great many, we had a great many sources. I mean, we, we don't mention their names unless they have outed themselves. <laughs> oh, that seems only fair. That seems, that's, that, that's good journalistic uh, source protection. Arthur and Bernard did both um, out themselves and were very proud of their connection with the show. Um, and then there are other people who have done, like, say, Michael Heseltine, who's talked uh, very, very publicly about having lunch with us. And, but there were many others who, who, who we've not mentioned, we never mentioned. Uh, and were there times when they were telling you things that had really happened in government that you would think, well, that's just too silly, uh, we, we couldn't possibly use that? Or were there, were there whole stories which had really happened that, that, that went sort of wholesale into, into the show? How much... Uh, artistic license did you have to take with some of the stories you were told? We didn't have to take much artistic license. We exaggerated slightly to heighten the comic effect. Some of the stories were based very much on events that had actually happened. More of them were based on things that we thought could happen. Or what we would say to our sources is not, has this happened, but can you imagine this happening? And if they said, no, that's too impossible, then we wouldn't do it. But otherwise we would. For example, we wrote an episode about the health service in which there was, we invented a, a hospital that had 500 administrative staff, but no doctors, <laughs> no nurses, and no patients. And it turned out after that show went on the air that there were about six such hospitals in the UK. <laughs> and there was one hospital somewhere in Cambridgeshire which had only one patient who was the matron who had tripped over the scaffolding and <laughs> broken her leg. <laughs> Because it was sort of grounded in its time. There were sort of various references at times to, uh, the, you know, I think there's reference to the Falklands, but also, you know, uh, a debate about Britain's relationship with Europe. I mean, that's something that never goes away. Um, but it, it, it was grounded in its time, but it's kept a timelessness. Oh. Were you conscious of trying to, to make it timeless? We weren't conscious of trying to make it timeless, but we were aware that these issues were all timeless. In other words... Uh, when we were starting to do Yes, Prime Minister, I went to the Daily Telegraph offices in Fleet Street, which where they, everything was in Fleet Street in those days, some of the newspapers. I looked up what had happened in the same week, 30 years earlier, August 1956. And they were all the same stories that were current when we were writing Yes, Prime Minister. Uh, is there going to be a war in the Middle East? What's happening about, is there going to be inflation or deflation? Why is there no national transport policy? Why is the National Health Service short of money? And so forth. They were all the same issues. And they mostly are today. And on, on the subject of Europe, I, I mean, it, only recently I was, uh, I think we played a, a clip on the uh, on Times Radio of the uh, the debate about the Euro sausage. And uh, that, of course, is the episode where Jim Hacker goes from being fairly happy at the Department of Ministry of Affairs to becoming Prime Minister. Does it surprise you that we're still having sort of all those uh, debates right now? About the Euro sausage? Yeah, oh, about the... Oh, in fact, oh. there was there was a very recent... It was because I think uh, Michael Gove was having an issue about sausages getting in and out of uh, of Northern Ireland, and it all suddenly... It all came flooding back. Yeah, this is constant, isn't it? Um, I mean, in, in, in our programme, uh, Jim realised that this was a real vote winner next year we shall be waving goodbye to the good old British sausage and we'll be forced to accept some foreign mac like salami or bratwurst or something in its place. But they can't stop us eating the British sausage, mm. can they? They can stop us calling it the sausage, though. Apparently it's got to be called the emulsified high-fat offal tube. <laughs> and, and he was 
he saw this was a real vote winner and he had to do something that to get his name into the papers because with Sir Humphrey's help, he had managed to discredit the two main competitors for the job of prime minister. And he suddenly was in the running, which often happens, you know. Because it was 35 years uh, this year since Jim Hacker became prime minister. Like you said, after uh, uh, everyone else sort of dropped out and he, he built a campaign around saving the great British sausage. I mean, it's not a million miles away from the way that Boris Johnson ended up becoming prime minister in, uh, no, it's not. <laughs> in, not, in 2019. Not at all. And of course, Mrs May, you know, was a complete outsider when she got to be prime minister. I mean, that was a big surprise to everybody. Yeah, it's such, such is the way. And like you said, you know, that was what was happening 35 uh, years ago in uh, Yes Minister. Um, yes. One, of the, one of the things that really strikes me is that, is the, uh, and again, I'm sure you weren't thinking about this when you were writing it, but the, the language of the show, which has become just part of, you know, the Westminster vocabulary now, whether it's, you know, that's a very brave decision, Prime Minister, for something which is utterly idiotic, or just referring to senior civil servants as Sir Humphrey. You sort of defined in many people's minds how how Whitehall and government works. Were you conscious of that? You sort of, you've, 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 the addition that you've made to the, the nation's vocabulary? Well, of course, we didn't expect that to happen. We thought we'd write six half-hour shows on BBC Two, which would be fun for us, and that would be that. So we didn't expect any of that to happen. Of course, we were we were telling the truth about government, and nobody had done that before in popular entertainment. And then, of course, we didn't expect Sir Humphrey to become, you know, a, a fixture in the in English literature. Like, uh, but he's become like Jeeves or Worcester or something. Interestingly, before um, knowing that I was uh, going to be speaking to you, I asked some listeners what they would like to ask you, and almost all the questions actually were about Sir Humphrey rather than uh, Jim. Uh, Kumar said, what would Sir Humphrey think of sofa government? Catherine also asking, how would Sir Humphrey have handled Dominic Cummings? What would what would the, the Sir Humphrey of your creation have made of the way that, that politics is played out now? And I suppose the big difference is the... Those advisors, Dominic Cummings, special advisors, spads and so on, weren't a big part of, of Yes Prime Minister in a way that they are in politics today. Well, uh, they were in the first series. Jim had a special advisor called Frank Weisel. Of course, yes, and, yes, yes, yes. And we know how Sir Humphrey handled him. He got him out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was uh, regarded as a total nuisance. And he was removed from any sort of influence. So that's how Sir Humphrey would have handled Dominic Cummings, I think, um, because he was such a pest to the civil service. What about politicians and civil servants who say they were fans of the show? I mean, Margaret Thatcher famously was such a huge fan of the show. She appeared in a sketch about it. I want you to abolish economists. (laughs) Abolish economists, Prime Minister. Yes, abolish economists, and quickly. All of them, Brandon. <laughs> which, which she wrote. Now, I was going to ask about this. Who, so who, who wrote the sketch? Well, she wrote it with Bernard Ingham, who was her press secretary, and I think a bit of help from Robin Butler, who was her private secretary, um, and who later became cabinet secretary. Uh, to my astonishment, I learned recently uh, that, it, that they rehearsed it 23 times at number 10 before she dared do it with Paul and Nigel. And it, which made me ask the, the obvious question, why weren't they running the country? <laughs> That's amazing. It is amazing. And uh, I was deeply embarrassed by the sketch. But And so were Paul and Nigel, who really didn't want to be in it. But it was we, we were being given an award by Mary Whitehouse's Viewers and Listeners Association, presumably for being a nice, clean family show or something. I don't quite know what <laughs> the award, why, why she gave us an award. 
and Mrs. Thatcher saw this as a possibility for her, and so announced that she was going to present the award, the award, and then decided to do a sketch with Paul and Nigel, and they both phoned me and said, how do we get out of this? And I said, well, I can't get you out of it. If you don't want to do it, say no. But they didn't dare say no to Mrs. Thatcher's. You do wonder after the 10th or 12th rehearsal, they might have decided that maybe this wasn't a good idea. And, the, you know, the audience laughed a lot. There were about 500 journalists there. It was as if we'd just sort of completed a new Middle East agreement, peace agreement. Because Mrs. Thatcher was giving us this award. Paul and Nigel were going to be there, and the show was so popular, the room was jammed with journalists and microphones and cameras. And what about political shows which have followed since? I mean, the, the obvious one is The Thick of It, which which at the time was viewed as sort of a, a bit of sort of yes, Prime Minister for the 21st century. But what, how do you feel about The Thick of It? Well, I thought it was very funny. I don't think it was doing anything like the sort of thing that we were doing. What really made it funny was the torrent of obscene language from the character Peter Capaldi played. Malcolm Tucker. Um, and I thought that was all very funny, but it wasn't really about how government works. We had a different approach, but Armando Iannucci was always very flattering about Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister and said that, you know, we were the, the sort of the influence, the influence on him doing the thick of it, which was very nice of him. And I enjoyed that. And I really enjoyed an HBO series recently called, it was about the Vice President. Oh, Veep. Veep, which is, yes, terrific. Yeah. Very, very funny, I thought. Um, so, I mean, I think there have been some, some very good political shows since ours, but it's ex extraordinary, really, to me, that ours is still popular. And I gather it's being aired at the moment on the BBC. And I, I get emails about it nearly every day from someone who's seen a programme and, and tells me how topical it is. <laughs> I wonder if it's because it's it's not party political and because it, it, it's a, it's political comedy but it's not sort of hard-edged satirical comedy trying to change people's you know minds about which way to vote or you know no. one party or another it's it's a political sitcom it's not political satire in that sense well i think it is political satire because satire is a mode of comedy that is designed to or intended to make things change and we did think that things should change we thought the system was flawed and funny um and we wanted to show that but we weren't making political points you're right uh, we were making points about the government and i think the reason it was so popular was that it somehow although we thought it would it didn't offend anybody M mrs thatcher was typical she loved it because she thought it portrayed the civil servants accurately uh, she didn't really think that it got the politicians right the civil servants all thought that we'd really nailed the politicians although we weren't <laughs> accurate about the civil service Tories thought it was a Tory show and Labour people thought it was a Labour show and Lib Dems thought it was a sort of in-between show. And uh, for some reason, everyone saw in it just what they wanted to see. And I suppose that's why it's been so so popular ever since. Where is Jim Hacker now? To be, I mean, in, even in the last few days, there's been lots of stories about what David Cameron's been getting up to in his years since leaving Downing Street. What's Jim Hacker up to these days? Yeah, poor old Cameron. That doesn't pass. That thing doesn't pass the smell test, really, does it? That uh, these recent discoveries. But what's Jim Hacker been up to? Well, I've just written a play, which I hope will be going on when this plague is over. And it's about um, Jim Hacker and Sir Humphrey in their eighties, uh, and they're old, forgotten, powerless, um, and not very happy with their lot. Not very happy with the way the world is going. And it's called. I'm sorry, Prime Minister. I can't quite remember. <laughs> And it's got uh, it's got Simon Callow in it. Is that right? Yes, 
Yes, I, I, I think so. I hope so. I mean, contracts are yet to be signed, but I believe it, it so. It was because it was all ready to go sort of this time last year and obviously the, the pandemic uh, intervened. Have you had to uh, update it, adapt it? How topical is it? Uh, I've made a, a few little changes since, since the play was written uh, in the last year. But, I mean, only a line or two here and there. Um, topicality was never the point. It was never the point with our series, although people viewed it as topical at the time. We used to write it about a year ahead of transmission. Then on the week of rehearsals, just before it was before it was recorded and shown, we might put in, a, you know, a topical line or two. We didn't try to be topical. We just, because we were really looking at an unchanging flawed system you, you, although it was hugely successful in the, in the sense it was hugely popular were you successful do you think in, in any way changing that flawed system um i regret to say we were i regret that it's now more flawed <laughs> uh, uh, it's now absolutely full of these special advisors spads who leave university and go straight into a special advisor job, and in no time they they get a safe seat, and then they become politicians running the country. That's what David Cameron was. That's what lots of them are, and Dominic Cummings, and you know, I mean, there are just so many people now running the government who actually are not terribly competent because they haven't got the experience or the practice or the training. Um, so on the whole, I think the civil service is in a worse state than it was when we were writing because. What the un, the unfortunate side effect of our series was to make politicians distrust the civil service. Uh, and what about the, the way that the public view them both? Do you think we hold our our political leaders in in lower regards than than when Jim Hacker was was on the TV? That's why politicians liked the program, because for the first time it gave them an alibi. People for the first time understood that if they didn't keep their promises, it might be because they'd been unable to or prevented from doing so. Now, maybe the promises were stupid or ill-advised and the civil service was right to prevent them. But the politicians, for the first time ever, had an alibi if they didn't, you know, keep their promises. The civil servants, uh, by the same token, now that they were being blamed by politicians, felt they had to stick up for themselves and occasionally point out that, they had given the right advice. I think overall, I think the influence of our programme has, has not been good for the government of the country. As Jonathan Lynn talks to you there on the Times Red Box podcast. And if you want to catch up on Yes, Mr. Right Now, it is being shown by the BBC on BBC Two on Tuesday nights at eight o'clock. You can catch it on the iPlayer too. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial. 
plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.